0: Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being.
1: This is episode 102. What I just couldn't ignore was the fact that Jesus was nowhere to be seen. Like, they promised more Jesus and I felt abandoned.
0: Blake Mundell is a singer-songwriter, sports massage therapist, and instructor of ethics and anatomy and physiology at Mind Body Institute in Nashville. During the fall, he works on the medical staff of the Tennessee Titans, and in the spring, writes and records music under the artist's name Courier. He currently lives quarantined with his partner Tim and dog Jesse, who inherited his name from the protagonist of Bridge to Terabithia. Let's talk about Bridge to Terabithia for a second, because I went and saw that movie when I was... A kid, had no context for it, thought it was going to be this cute little fantasy movie. And and I guess I don't want to give any spoilers, Or even though that was years ago, but something tragic happens. <laughs> I was depressed for a week. That movie took a dark turn. I still get feelings when I think about that movie. I never read the book, so I'm just referring to it as a movie. Anyway, anyway Bridge to Terrapathia, We could do a whole episode on that and trauma. Blake is happiest on a beach volleyball court, which, don't know how he finds that in Nashville, but I'm so excited to have Blake on the show today. I feel like I often see comments on Facebook or or Twitter or or just various threads where, where people are looking for good queer music to listen to. Blake is one of those people who makes really good music. We get into some of the stories behind his songs into this episode, play some clips of them as well alongside talking about whiteness and what it means to do work with whiteness as a white person. Just as a heads up, themes of suicide do come up in this episode. No announcements today, so let's just go
1: ahead and dive in. Blake, hi, welcome. Hey, Matthias. It's great to be talking to you.
0: Yeah, I'm so excited to have you here. So to start, I'll ask the question I ask everyone. Uh, How do you identify and how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? Gosh, that question's hard.
1: I've listened to this podcast a uh, hundred times, so I knew this question was coming. <laughs> and, you know, earlier this week when I knew I'd be talking to you, I asked this of myself for maybe the first time and realized that it made me very anxious and that perhaps some version of this question is is something that I've, or maybe that has always been with me as some sort of deep spiritual existential question that I have been trying to solve and still um, am. So in that anxiety, I actually reached out to a few friends and just sort of asked them, like, "Hey, like, who am I? Like, who would you say that I am?" And uh, got some good responses. But I heard from a good friend of mine, Sue Ann Shaw, who I believe has been on this show before, and she challenged me to uh, remember that as much as I want to think that I can sort of come up with or form my identity in a in a vacuum. That it's always being formed within context and that context is usually the people that i'm around and the community that i belong to and friends and family so after thinking about that a little bit more i would say back to the actual question i identify as a white gay cisgendered man my pronouns are he him his i feel A little more comfortable with calling myself queer these days. That seems to be the best fit for me, especially when thinking about the people that I'm in closest community with. And then, yeah, as far as my faith, that's another layer of difficulty um, because my faith communities have changed drastically over the course of my life, but especially in the past couple years. And so I think the big question mark there for me is I wouldn't not self-identify as Christian, but I also don't necessarily feel comfortable self-identifying as Christian, even though I'm still deeply interested and hold deep affection for the person of Jesus. There's a lot there that I'm reevaluating and unpacking and, yeah, kind of holding some past experiences in tension with that. So, yeah, it kind of runs the gamut. (laughs)
0: Like, two things in that. Like, the first, I guess this is three things now. <laughs> the first is <laughs> Sue Ann Shaw, like my yes. goodness. <laughs> oh, gosh. She's amazing. <laughs> amazing. If folks haven't listened to that episode with her, I truly think it's one of my favorite episodes that we've ever done on Queerology. So folks need to go look that up. Second, that, But that insight, though, of of our identities being defined by our communities, the people that we surround ourselves with, I mean, I think that is so true. And in some ways, it's so easy to kind of get caught up in this, how do I identify myself and miss the reality of like, we are people formed within relationships, within community. So I just think that's a beautiful insight.
1: Yeah. It was almost for me, I was having so much trouble arriving at a firm category for myself in in terms of self-identification that I really couldn't figure out until I started thinking within the context of, well, who are the people that I do belong to? And that opened a doorway to me.
0: And what you said about your kind of the complexity of identifying as Christian, like that's a tension that I feel personally so much closely. Like it's, 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 it's that, like, okay, I wouldn't, I mean, like you said, I wouldn't not identify myself as Christian. And yet it's an uncomfortable label, I think, especially at this current moment in time. But I would love to hear about some of that journey of, growing up, coming out? like I mean, I know that's a huge question.
1: I would say that journey has just been all over the place. I don't know a good way to describe it in total. But yeah, I heard someone, I can't remember who right now, but I heard someone talk about their faith identification or their, I guess, religious identification as being one in which they recognized that there were all of these different kind of religious expressions within themselves that they could kind of pull out at will or they could consult at will and that's i've been able to kind of relate to that most most recently so when i was super young and growing up my parents were non-religious in fact were fairly antagonistic towards most religion but especially christianity and so (laughs) I think that created what I would call like a spiritual vacuum in my house. And so for whatever reason, responding to that vacuum, it seemed like I would just seek out whatever spiritual experience or story or relic or really just anything that in any way resembled spirituality, I sought it out. And so, gosh, I in fifth grade, I called myself a Buddhist, probably because I like Googled Buddha quotes that were probably falsely ascribed to him, um, <laughs> but, you know, did everything that I could in my fifth grade mind to practice that sort of spirituality then. And, I mean, I got into Wicca for a little while. I explored all sorts of, you know, mythologies. I, I loved Greek and Roman and Egyptian mythologies and sort of cycled through all of those things before coming into Christianity through almost a explosive conversion experience in which I guess I'll get into it a little bit more. But the, I was dating a girl when I was in seventh grade, and she was the one who introduced me to Wicca. And so we would cast spells together, and we would do a lot of things that I wouldn't necessarily, at least from my understanding of the Wiccan religion now, I wouldn't necessarily... I think we were just kind of shooting from the hip with it. Um, but anyway, she... Ended up undergoing an exorcism. So that was like very confusing, scary time for me. And she one night got her mom's car and drove it as fast as she could into a ditch and passed away. And I was convinced that the behavior that she showed kind of in the months leading up to that event and something similar to that event would happen to me and that it was going to happen to me soon. And so, motivated by that fear, I kind of looked out around me and was sort of like, I've experienced this thing that I would call evil, even though I didn't really know how specifically to define evil then. And I just sort of asked, you know, what's out there that can allow me to fit this experience into the framework of some faith tradition that could save me? And and that's kind of how I got into Christianity, looked for a safe space at a Baptist church, which would end up not being very safe um, <laughs> later on. But yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, that experience of finding Christianity out of a place of fear. I mean, that feels true to my experience. I mean, obviously, I'm not trying to say they're the same experience by any way, in any way, but like that sense of believing these things or being a part of this community is going to keep me from what I'm afraid of. I mean, my story was hell. That feels like a, I don't know if I want to say a common experience, but like, but like that
1: feels like a, a selling point that was used often. (laughs) 100%. Yes. Yeah. I kind of stumbled into it on my own, but um, I, I do think it's, it's a common experience. And then it obviously begs the question, you know, like, is that a good motivation for jumping into a major life change? or at least it was for me. And I think that question remains to be seen. I don't think, you know, like we ever have pure motivations 100% of the time or even like 1% of the time, (laughs) but I am and remain like thankful for finding my way into that church and um, for the tradition that I've been a part of since, even though it has been very painful at times. That feels like a really
0: beautiful way to kind of hold some of that tension there, that that sense of, I'm so thankful for this and acknowledging the fact that it's been incredibly painful.
1: Yeah. I mean, even how we started, when we started talking about community, I I think, you know, throughout most of my college years and even after I really came to terms with my sexuality, there was a sense of um, camaraderie that I would experience with Christians, even in a place that was incredibly painful. So, I mean, as soon as I started admitting that to people, I voluntarily checked myself into a conversion therapy program and was there for not a terribly long time, but I would still encounter those pieces of advice and that language for years after. And although it was, I mean, incredibly, I would even say abusive and damaging, It, at the same time, still taught me vulnerability with other people and how to exist in tension with other people. And while I in no way am saying that to try to justify real harm and real abuse, yeah, like, it's exactly what you said. I I still can't deny the fact that I learned a great deal about how to exist in community, even though I exist in a completely different one now from my time in more conservative christian traditions that i was a part of for most of my 20s (laughs) so you're a recording artist you make music you do a lot of things in
0: your life but this is one element that's like i mean you're you're currently working on a new album you
1: have a new single coming out here really soon i'd love to hear about that honestly so much of that has been informed by what we've just been talking about so I came out to Nashville in 2007 to do the music thing. I, I wanted to be a, like a worship songwriter and I was like in a part of that community and had a publishing deal and all of those things um, became disillusioned very quickly with the industry out here and just started writing my own stuff. It was more kind of folky, singer-songwriter-y, like very earnest kind of songs and then went on tour with a pop band like it, pop punk band. So it's like painting our nails, like doing eyeliner, like the whole nine yards <laughs> and realized through that tour that like deep down, I love pop music and always have. And somewhere along the way, just kind of thought that it was maybe unintelligent or I don't know, but uh, I got over that and kind of moved back into pop. And so um, that's kind of when I made a, a transition from making music under my own name to making music under the name Courier, which is, I almost call it a concept artist, for lack of a better term, because most of the music that I create under that term was written about the experiences of other people. So my first project, it was called The Present Tense. It came out a few years back, but each song on that record was written about the life experiences of each person in the small group that I was a part of at that time. So I wrote all those songs in secret, invited them all to a show, played it all for them. It was an incredible night. Um, Honestly, like one of my favorite memories to this day. But we turned that into a record. And a lot of the feedback that I would get about that record was that it helped people see the people in my small group. It helped humanize them. You know, I think it is true that sometimes the more specific that we can get about things, the more that it can apply generally to all people So when I was thinking about the next project that I wanted to embark on, I was sort of thinking, cool, so if that's what this whole thing is about, you know, if humanizing other people is uh, kind of, if that's what I found the main goal of this music thing for me to be, then I just started thinking, you know, like, what are, who are the people in my life, honestly, who need humanizing the most? Who are the people that really need to be seen in all of their dignity for uh, my listeners, um, the way that I see them. So all that was kind of happening at the same... It was like late 2016. It was during the time of like Kaepernick's protests. Just a side note, I work for an NFL team. So like I was privy to a lot of conversations that were going on. I was hearing a lot of experiences from just countless people, Black men especially, who have had experiences just being stopped by the police and arrested for no reason. So all of that was kind of swirling around in my mind as well. And um, so I had this idea for this project, and actually one of the first people that I took it to was Sue Ann, and um, just asked Sue Ann, like, hey, I'm a white, pretty straight-passing dude who is thinking about making these songs in collaboration with my friends of color, with my LGBTQIA friends, um, with an array of friends who fall in the margins. Um, and is this something that's appropriate for me to be doing given the vast history of white artists appropriating black work and black stories? Right. And so we had a conversation about that and she said, I think you should do it, but just know that you'll get flack from everywhere and you're going to mess up. But, um, even, while you're messing up, know that it's okay, but you still need to do everything you can not to mess up. <laughs> so that's stuck with me. Um, and that's sort of been at the core of this project from the beginning. And there's been tons of conversations about what collaboration looks like, where the the flow of money is happening and and where that goes and comes from. All of those conversations are conversations that wouldn't have been happening in a different context with a different project, but And so anyway, it got delayed a little bit, but I'm kind of closing in on the finish line now and put one single out about a month ago and another one will be coming out on the 17th. I'm really excited about. Have you heard something on Queerology that's made a big impact on your
0: life? Do you now follow one of my guests because you've met them here? Because of the format of Queerology, you get to meet people in a way that lets you relate and connect. There's something uniquely personal and intimate about the conversations that happen here. If this is something you've experienced, then help me keep these conversations going by making a financial gift and becoming a Queerology Active Listener. You'll get access to the Active Listeners Facebook group right away, a place for all of us to continue these conversations throughout the week. All you need to do is jump over to patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. Choose your gift amount, and you'll be an active listener. It's really easy. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Matthias Roberts. I really look forward to meeting you in the Facebook group. One of the songs that you've recently put out is called White Tears. And one of the lines in it really stuck out to me. If I give up my power... I give up the thing that binds me to my people. I think, especially, I mean, in the context of that of that conversation we started with, of our identities come from our communities. That's a powerful line.
1: Yeah, gosh, that song, and I've, I just spent a lot of time talking about how these songs were written about other people's experiences. But I was actually challenged by Sue Ann in the writing of this project to turn the mirror on myself in terms of race because it wouldn't be right for me to tell the stories of all of my friends and how they find belonging in their own racial categories without me doing the same work for myself, which, I mean, white people tend to do a lot. <laughs> and so that song was written as a, an, an interrogation of, of my whiteness um, and was called White Tears because I think there's a great deal of emotional labor that we must do as white folks in what time we have when we're not actively trying to dismantle the systems that oppress our siblings of color. And so, yeah, that line, if I give up my power, I give up the thing that binds me to my people. I think we have to be real about the glue that holds our communities together. I think we have to understand that well, I, I'll, I'll give myself as, as an example. You know, My um, my ancestors were mostly Irish and Scandinavian, but especially my Irish ancestors, when they came over, had to do a lot of work to give up their Irish heritage in order to assimilate to whiteness, right? Gave up customs, ways of speaking, even we changed my last name. Um, it used to be spelled differently and then became quote-unquote Americanized, right? And that was to—they sacrificed all those things on the altar of whiteness to gain— societal power. And so that song, what it's about is the realization that whiteness, yes, oppresses, or the system of whiteness, rather, is a system that oppresses and kills people of color daily and has for the history of our country. But it also costs us something. And I don't think that that's something that we necessarily should be processing with our siblings of color, but I do think that it's something that we should be processing with each other. Yeah, I sort of think of I think of Voldemort as an apt image for what whiteness does in that, you know, Voldemort, in order to gain more power and to live longer, uh, he made these things called horcruxes, right? And so by doing that, he would have to actually kill somebody, and the process of killing somebody split his soul, and he would use that fragment to create this thing that would give him more power. In a sense, it's like in order to dehumanize other people, we also dehumanize ourselves. We also lose touch with our own humanity. Again, I think that that work is something that needs to be done. You know, just like, you know, any of us who have had to repress part of ourselves for a long time know that it tends to come out sideways um, at some point. You know, Um, it's hard to keep things repressed without some sort of negative consequence, right? And I think the same can be said for feelings of white guilt, feelings of white fear, white shame, white anger. I think those are all things that we can't brush aside because we want to cling to the idea that we're one of the good ones, <laughs> but we we have to process those either with a therapist or on our own or with other white friends so that we don't end up hurting our siblings of color even while we're doing the most important work which again is to dismantle the systems that oppress our siblings of color.
0: Let's play a clip of that song. If the- I think I want to stay here for a moment longer, because you mentioned, like, this is work as white folks. You, you use the phrase emotional labor. This is emotional labor that white folk, that we need to be doing. And that's such an interesting term, because so often I see the term emotional labor in a sense of, you need to, we need to step away from doing emotional labor, or we need to pay people for doing emotional labor, so on and so forth, right? And what I'm hearing and what you're saying is, like, no, no, no. Like, as, as white folks, it's our responsibility to do labor that is going to be truly emotional.
1: Yeah, I think it's labor that needs doing. And so if we don't do it, someone's going to be doing it. And so often that just falls to our siblings of color to do, right? And so I think, yeah, like, we're responsible for those emotions, when all too often uh, we want to project them onto the people around us and uh, have our guilt be assuaged by somebody. When, yeah, I think that, that that work is, I think it does involve labor. I think it is hard, but necessary for us to be doing.
0: Yes, so important. And, and it brings to mind, I mean, this image of white tears, which in in like larger kind of critical race theory is, is this defense mechanism of white people breaking breaking out and down in tears in order to bring to recenter to to bring attention back and i think in your song there's this sense of these are real tears but they're not tears that are there's a place
1: for tears (laughs) yeah and that was that was the goal of the song you know like the title carries a couple different meanings right like i wanted the title to be white tears because I wanted to alert people of color that hey like this song is almost a myopic coming to terms with my own whiteness. And though it's something that I think needs doing, I don't want to shove that work onto my siblings of color. So it it was both a term to I guess kind of send a message to folks that were like, yeah, these are white tears in the sense of like, I don't want to see your white tears. Like I don't have time to kind of wallow in white defensiveness, right? It, so it's both that and the reality that whiteness does cost white people something, that um, if we don't do the work of dealing with these real emotions, that they will come out sideways at some point in time. And so, yeah, I think it's both and. But, you know, I think of like, if I could think of like, a I don't know, a a metaphor for this, it would be. I always try to, like, boil things down to interpersonal relationships. So, I mean, let's say there's a soldier in war, and um, under orders of the general, this soldier comes and attacks a civilian. And in the process of attacking the civilian, the soldier is also hurt. Like, let's say the civilian is, like, very seriously hurt, and the, the soldier loses a few fingers. So, realities have changed for both the soldier and the civilian, the civilian was the victim the civilian their life was was changed most drastically but i think the soldier also has to come to terms with the fact that his reality has changed as well he's going to live life just like with the minor inconvenience of losing some fingers but also with the sense that like he carried out these heinous orders from a general now if that soldier wanted to process those feelings which need to be processed If there's going to be any sort of like reintegration into society, I think that that soldier would need to go and process those feelings with maybe other soldiers who have had similar experiences or someone else, but it would be vastly inappropriate for that soldier to try to go to the person that he victimized and try to process his new lived reality with that person. So, yeah, I think bringing it back to us, we have to be doing the work of becoming whole people again. Because whiteness has distanced us from our own humanity. We need to be working to get our own humanity back. First and foremost, again, I just want to keep driving this home because I think we can really easily fall into the cracks of making anti-racism kind of like a adventure of personal growth for us, right? Which it's not. It's about dismantling these unjust systems. But um, I think that in the process, um, in the the cracks of time that we have available in which we're not um, actively engaging in that fight, I think we should be processing our own junk because <laughs> we've got a lot of it.
0: So you have a new single coming
1: out. Yep. Love to hear about that. Yeah. So new single, um, it's called Conversion. A little bit of backstory. When I started writing for this record, I was still, I mean, at the time I was, I guess I would call it side B. I I mean, my theology at that time was, I'm not sure how to nail it down, but it was far from affirming of myself or anyone else. And so I had a friend that I went through conversion therapy with, and uh, he dropped out a lot sooner than I did and came out for the second time in his life and fully affirmed himself and kind of deconstructed and reconstructed. His theology around sexuality, and he wrote me a letter. And uh, in the letter, he just he pretty much just laid out like, "Hey, I've I've been trying so hard to do what everyone wants me to do in this program, and it's not only not working, but it's it's hurting me." So I I remember reading his letter for the first time and wanting so badly to empathize, but knowing that I kind of needed to hold these theological. Walls in place so that I wouldn't kind of in my mind at the time get swept along. And so it was much later um, that I sat down to write a song about him that I thought about his letter and I dug it back out. And, uh, you know, as soon as I started reading the letter again, I got those same feelings where it was like, oh gosh, like I can so easily access this pain that he seems to be communicating. But I need to maintain this, um, these walls because, you know, I don't want to feel this too deeply because what would that mean? And eventually I just sort of decided, you know, like if I'm going to do this project justice and if I'm actually going to do my friend justice in this collaborative endeavor with him, that I needed to offer him the same courtesy and the same dignity that I was offering all of the other people that I was collaborating with and really try to get into his experience and so, I read the letter again and um, let the walls down, and uh, this song kind of rose up from that. And there was one line in there that really kind of shook me to my core, um, and it just kind of dropped into my lap. Like, there are lines that you, like, work really hard for, and then there are other lines that just seem like little, you know, gifts from the divine. But um, this was one of those lines, and it, it it it's like in the second verse, it says, um, what they call freedom feels more like abuse. And uh, when I wrote that, I was like, oh my gosh, that feels so true and that hurts so bad. And yeah, this song wasn't really the only catalyst that uh, led me to actually reconsider my convictions and, and to destroy those walls and to finally affirm myself and others, but um, it was definitely one of them. So yeah, so that's that's this song.
0: Let's listen to a bit of it. yeah. <laughs>
1: i to be of myself
0: I need to hold these theological walls in place, that being literally a barrier from experiencing empathy. Like when you say that, like I know what that feels like in my body. Like I've done that before. There's something so heartbreaking in it, and it's like a very real thing. Like I I, I think to a point I still do it, right? Like it's it's not <laughs> it's not something that's deeply in my past. And like as as you talk about this, this this sense of as i began to empathize as i began to let those walls down it literally transformed your life like you started questioning your own theology you started coming out you you had this whole process simply from experiencing empathy or letting yourself take down those walls
1: yeah uh, gosh that's i mean that's such a great point too in in the sense that It's a process that's ongoing and will be ongoing probably as long as I live. And, you know, like I'm a four, so I value, you know, quote unquote authenticity, you know, like letting people in on what's going on deep down. But there were certainly parts of my life that, yeah, I would compartmentalize and put in a box and and justify away. You know, I think, Matthias, like my story is one in which I felt like I just did everything by the book, like textbook listening to all of the advice from my pastors about what I needed to do and and how I should think about myself because we're all told, or most of us are told, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, right? So like we shouldn't be listening to what our own experiences are telling us. And yeah, I think reading that letter was one of the first times where I was like, gosh, like maybe I should be listening to this. Maybe I should be listening to my experience. I was told by my pastor, I was like 26 or 27. This was when I was, I thought that I needed to live a celibate life. And I was told by my pastor, I don't think you have the gift of celibacy because you're depressed all the time. (laughs) I think you should marry a woman. And, um, even though everything in me was like, that does not feel right. That's what I did. And, um, literally did every step that I could to kind of usher in the promised fruit that, um, my pastors told me would, would come. And, The hard part was, is uh, not only was like no real fruit showing up, but what was showing up seemed just rotten and um, dark. And, you know, they would say, gosh, like, yeah, you probably won't, you know, be as happy as as a normal man, you know, quote unquote normal man would in, in a quote unquote normal Christian relationship. But at least you'll have more Jesus, right? you know, maybe you won't experience as much happiness in life, but the suffering will bring you closer to Jesus as Jesus suffered. And what I couldn't ignore was the fact that Jesus was nowhere to be seen. Like, they they promised more Jesus and I felt abandoned. And so, um, I think, you know, the tipping point really was, like, listening to my experience. And yeah, like you said, that's a process that I'm still learning how to do and (laughs) still— feel like I'm not even very good at, but um, that uh, one I want to get better at anyway.
0: As you describe that, like, you may not be as happy, but at least you'll have more Jesus. Those are words I heard in one one way or another growing up. This idea of linking suffering right now to promised abundance later, or at least a coping abundance currently <laughs> because of because of Jesus and and like i mean this is gonna be really strong language but that's really fucked up <laughs> like it's, it's i mean I, I think of like it's so manipulative and i mean i could get on a get on a a soapbox here but like it, it makes me think of i mean kevin garcia and and his coining of the phrase bad theology kills like you're describing this sense of, I mean, maybe it wasn't actual physical death, but moving towards death instead of life.
1: Yeah, Matthias. If I'm being very honest, it it very nearly did kill me. And yeah, I mean, those words have definitely rang true. It does kill. Like, yeah, I mean, I think several years ago, I would have thought that's an exaggeration, right? Like, but it's it's not. Um, it's very real. Um, those. Uh, false promises and and that manipulation had very real consequences on my mind, on my emotions, on my physical body even, you know? So as you you look forward to this new
0: album that's releasing, so you've you've released one single, you have this new single coming out here in a couple days and then a a full album dropping later this year, what are you most
1: excited about? What's so wild is that... This the question at the heart of this record is the same question that I ask in White Tears, and that all of the co-participants in this uh, record have been asking as we've been creating it, which is, who are my people? And what I had no idea would be the case when I started this was that is a very real question that I've had to ask myself and try to figure out in the last couple years. So it feels almost prophetic in a way even though I feel uncomfortable using that term a little bit but I'm so excited to release this within the context of community to um, celebrate with the other people who have worked so hard with me along this process and I'm excited to see the joy that I, I guess does kind of spring to life in me you know for this project i I, I really think that some of the best art is done when the artist is, really doing it for themselves as selfish as that seems. But yeah, like the personal becomes universal. Well, the record tells this story. There's kind of a central narrative arc and it begins in dust kind of in my hometown and in some of the the problems there. And it ends in dust, which is this um, kind of eschatological imagining that I tried to do in song form so in the, in the very first song, there's a line in, in which I say, and I, I wrote this, this was one of the first songs that I wrote for the record. It, there's a line that says, right there in the corner of every room I walk into, I see the child I used to be watching, searching for something that survived. And when I think about that image, I think about the child in me that for the better part of my life was looking on and being like, are you going to continue to discard a huge part of who I am. And what I love about the last song is that it's an affirmation, um, a welcoming into a new, equitable, just reality in which we are all welcome as we are. And so the last song seems to say to that child, I will not discard any part of you. You are totally welcome here. And I'm excited to see what that story not only does for me, but uh, for the people who listen to the record.
0: I love that. You said you were a little bit uncomfortable with the word prophetic, which I understand. I get that. (laughs) And it it brings to mind, like in some theological streams, the idea of prophetic simply means naming what is true. And in that sense, it sounds like you've named what is true. How can people find your work?
1: Yeah. So, um, gosh, it's kind of hard to find me, but, um, On Instagram, I've like tried to change my Instagram name forever. And for whatever reason, Instagram won't let me, but it's Blake A. Mundell on Instagram. Twitter is uh, just Blake Mundell. And then um, most of my work you can just find by Googling Courier or uh, the website is therealcourier.com. Well, Blake, thank you
0: so much for joining me. This has been lovely.
1: Yeah, I love this. Thanks a lot for having me.
0: You can find Blake's music anywhere you listen to music by looking up Courier. His new single, Conversion, releases Friday. Blake is on Instagram at Blake A. Mundell and on Twitter at Blake Mundell. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod. Or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is produced with support from its listeners. To find out how you can help keep Queerology on the air by becoming an active listener, head over to patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. Another really easy way to support the show is by leaving a rating and a review. Do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRoberts.com slash review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on the show or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next time, y'all, bye.